We are particularly talking about history through the eyes of a Christian believer. You mentioned Dark Age Man, which I believe is one of the new Marvel episodes that are coming out. Are you serious? No. Homoousius. In unison. Homoousius. That's the reason that I teach this, is I feel like we all should be aware of history because it informs the way we approach every day. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with producer Wes. Make sure you check the link in our bio for our Ko-fi page. This is a great place to support the podcast, get more information and reference material, ask questions, make comments, and even chat with us. We're glad you're here. Hey, everybody. It's History Through the Eyes of Faith. This is Frank. Producer Wes is pulling this all together, and we're back. And when I say we, I mean me, Wes, probably not the right grammar, and Angie Ferris. Angie is here. This is this is History Through the Eyes of Fates with Angie Ferris, and I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr. So that's that's the official, that's the way it should be said. Um, and it's episode 80, what, four? 84. 84. Wow. Episode 84. And guess what, folks? Back, back again. Miss Sarah Ferris is here as well. Hey guys. Yes. She's coming to us from the Millennium Falcon. That's right. Uh, we're doing the old thing that people do these days with Zoom and Teams and Google Meets and WebEx and all the different names of the platforms. And um, we're going to see how it goes. I mean, uh, just because of uh, travel and schedules, we're trying to just get the get the episodes out there. I don't know if we love this platform, but it is gonna i think be sufficient in this in this moment but we'll see we'll see how it comes out thoughts ideas since since we were together last well i just have to come back with a little caveat on the story that i told on the end of 83 okay, okay. all right and Which i have to say huh which story was this the I don't story know, so where ago. i went and checked the phone records where she showed her receipt so I could see, and Those, this is somebody not may just, not have heard. Somebody that that just joining us may not know what you're referring to. If you even need to give it a little background, no, I don't. It's fine. I had to go check my phone records. You can listen to eighty three and see why. <laughs> I just want to say that a big part of the reason I did that is because this was at the end of a wreck where I was driving in and hit by another car in a head-on collision. And I I felt like I was calm and aware of everything that went on that night. So when it was brought to my attention that maybe I wasn't remembering things the way that they actually happened, Something, I, became, yeah. I became concerned. Yeah, like, are you really remembering things right? Yes, and so that was part of the reason I went and checked. It was not just to say, oh, yeah, I remembered it right. It was to say, was I remembering it right or was I more disoriented than I thought I was? I get it. So I just want to throw that out there. That's, I appreciate, caveat, that's it. I appreciate you doing that. Um, I can't remember things these days. 
And um, I, one of the things I do a lot is I tell people things over and over because I don't remember that I've already told them. And then I also don't remember things that are told to me or I don't remember things that I have done. This is not good, Frank. You, you need to work on that. We need to we work on some memory techniques and getting that brain up and going. But I want to hear a story. Because I think there's an event that has occurred. Oh, why don't you set it up and I'll so, see if I can tell it. So um, our uh, father had a birthday. Last week. We were, yeah, last week. And I was not in town for the birthday. Mm-hmm. It was a 92nd birthday. Mm-hmm. But my husband attended the event and yeah. Frank was there. And my mm-hmm. husband had a, quite a good time recounting the events of the evening. Mm-hmm. to Sarah and I. So we have been looking forward to hearing you recount well, it. There are some attributes and some highlights of the story that I am not able to share with the world. <laughs> That's correct. Because it, you know, it, I got to keep it acceptable to all platforms. But um, so our dad turned 92 on the 26th. <clears throat> anyway, not that we even really talk about dates a lot on the podcast, but that was recent. I'm going to have to clear my throat. Hold on. And here we go. So, and honestly, for us listening and for the, the listeners, I wasn't, my schedule was not going to be where I was planning on seeing him on his birthday. I was going to figure out a way to see him another time, but maybe not on his birthday because it was during the work week and things happening in the evenings. And it's just, I didn't think, but he called me the day before and invited me to go to dinner with him and our mom at a restaurant in their town. And I thought, well, I'm going to say yes, it's his birthday. And I'm going to try to bring any of my kids that are available. So that's what I did. And I brought two of the boys and we, we meet at the restaurant and our my my niece Sarah's cousin Angie's niece it's all the same person hope um was helping facilitate this and she brought our parents to the restaurant i got there uh, right at the same time they did i walked in just to see how far he was going to have to walk to a table and i said you know it's a party of six i didn't know tim was coming at the time <clears throat> and they said, we can put you right here. And so when when dad came into the restaurant with his cane and saw, and I, this is this is developing, like I did not know what was happening until I learned more as time went on. But he had apparently called ahead and reserved a specific booth for his own comfort, comfort and for a room for everybody to sit that was right there by the front door. And he was told that booth would be available. And when he saw the booth was not available and that we were sitting at these chairs next to it, he was not happy about that. And I can understand if you've called, made arrangements, this is your birthday, the manager said no problem, and you get there and it's not what they said. I didn't know any of that. And I'm thinking, well, we can just sit here and Tim can sit on the end. I don't want Tim sitting on the end. There's not enough room, which... Clearly, there was enough room, but I'm not going to argue this at this point. It's I'm going to step aside. 
We should note too, he's got a bad back. So part of it is a booth is way more comfortable for him to sit in than a chair. Yeah. 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 And that's the reason he asked for it. Yeah. So, um, so they said, well, we will put you at this table in this other room. It's big enough for everybody. And it was, it was a nice big table and it wasn't going to be a booth, but he was going to be okay with that. But he was still disappointed that they did not have what he asked for. That they told him they would have. Right. And we get to the table and I'm a little, I'm a little put out as well because as someone that's waited tables in the past, but also more importantly, I eat at restaurants and also I want guests to have a good experience. And I would expect management and wait staff to want their guests to have a good experience that it was pretty obvious to the hostess and the servers that this experience is not getting off to a good start. So when they put us at the other table and they're having it cleaned off for us, the person that was cleaning off the table was doing a real good job cleaning off parts of the table, but leaving crumbs on other parts of the table. So now I'm dealing with, we're not dealing with the br- with the top brass right now, okay? Because we're already off to a bad start, but now the table that they're cleaning off is not really cleaned off, and it's obvious. So I say to the guy cleaning off the table, are you going to get this too, or did you want to leave that there? Oh my gosh. Because (laughs) if there's a big, huge crumb in the middle of a table that you just cleaned off, then did you do that on purpose or you just not with it? Like what's happening with this part of the table? Right. And I just went ahead and said it because I'm like, I don't know what's happening here. Like, why are you working so hard of wiping (laughs) off this area? But there's clearly broccoli all right here. And now you're done wiping the table. <laughs> so is that on purpose? Was that what you're supposed to do? So I make that comment. People kind of laugh because everybody's looking at it going, what's happening? <laughs> right? So we sit down and every other table in the restaurant has plates and rolled up silverware, except this table that they just put us at. But it also had broccoli and other crumbs on it. Right. So. I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get us some plates and silverware. So I just start grabbing it off the other tables. It's not until now that our server approaches, who has been aware of the change in seating and the frustrated older man. The server is just now approaching the table. Do y'all need anything? And I'm like, yeah, we need some more plates and silverware that I'm already getting. I said that to the server. (laughs) So I'm a little bit wound up too. And I think... I think I was a little bit over the top, but I was having fun with it because I'm like, this is ridiculous. Going to dinner with the Franks. Yeah. So Franks, they're gonna come up. He sits down. We're all sitting down. Did Everybody's we even like, say that did we even say that Sarah's back with us? We did, didn't we? Yeah, we did say that. Okay. Sarah's back with us. I even mentioned it was so hope was Sarah's cousin. See, oh, I'm remembering right. stuff now. Anyway, yeah. you're the one not remembering stuff. So I'm now realizing I got to pull it back. Everybody's going to be fine. This is not off to a good start, but he's now accommodating. We're okay. And we begin, the server begins to take our drink order. Now, I'll be delicate here. I would say I could speak for the group that we weren't 100% sure if our server was male or female. Okay. 
which just adds another layer of what's going on here. I mean, not that you have to know, but when you want to address someone, you, you want to be appropriate with how you address that person. So anyway, I'm just putting that as another layer of confusion in the fact that who's cleaning the table? Do we have, we don't have the right table. There's just a lot of things going on. They're like, where, what's going, what's happening? Is this a prank show? What's going on? So they take our orders, drink orders. Everybody gets water or soda, except for our mother, who's 88, and she orders a margarita. Okay. The server asks for her ID. And we all think, oh, that's cute and funny. Because she looks every bit of 88. Every bit of 88. Okay. (laughs) So we all think that's cute. She thinks it's funny. And then he, the server, (laughs) she says, "Um, no, 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 I have to see your ID or I can't serve you. And we're now realizing, oh, this is for real. (laughs) Like, and so then our dad says, well, uh, oh, she didn't think she was going to the doctor. She just coming up here to get a margarita. And Hope says, I'll go back to the house and get her ID. No, does she not have it? No, she doesn't have it. (laughs) So then Papa says, oh, they're not going to serve her. We're just going to go somewhere else. And I'm thinking of what we've gotten to at this point. Now we're going to go somewhere else. Yeah. And, and I think the reason he chose that place. Is well, that's what I'm going to get to in the story. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It comes out in that moment that the reason he chose this restaurant for his birthday was for his wife to have the spinach artichoke dip and a margarita. That's why this place was chosen. Because that's her favorite thing to have there. But she can't have it because she doesn't have her ID. So then Papa says. Despite the fact that her granddaughter is sitting beside her. Yeah. Yeah. And. So Papa says, I'll tell you what, I'll order the margarita and you put it right here and then she can have some of it. Well, sir, now that you've said that, I can't serve you. Because (laughs) of state laws. So I'll just fast forward for a second and say that when I got back to the internet later, that's not true. Now, maybe this particular restaurant has a policy, but there is no state law that you have to card everyone. You will break the state law if you serve someone under age, but there's no state law that you have to card them. You have to ask for their ID. If an agent comes in and says, when I see your ID and someone is underage, then the state law has been broken and people will be fine. So he asked to speak to a manager. He said, we didn't get the right table. Now this and this, and I, we're just now like, what is happening? So the server goes, gets a manager. She comes out. How can I help you explain everything? She backs the whole thing up. We can't serve. Can't serve you. Sorry. So then we explain it again. And the server says, let me go get the manager. And we're thinking, you did not just get the man. Who was that we were talking to? (laughs) Well, that was my immediate supervisor because the manager is back in the kitchen. Manager comes out. Who was the person that our dad had spoken to at three in the afternoon? 
And he's saying, yeah, I'm sorry. I thought they were going to be able to be up from that table, but you know, what can I do? And I can't, you know, well, the reason we come here is she get the spinach orange coke dip and get a margarita. And then I'm 92 years old and this is my wife. And we've been married 66 years and she wants to come here and get a margarita. Well, sir, I'm sorry. We can't, he starts going the whole script about how we can't serve you, which is insane. Like, Oh, guess what? You got us. She's an undercover cop. We were just trying to <laughs> blow this joint apart. She this can't hardly rude. stand up by herself. No, no. So uh, he goes, we're just, I'm just going to call my, my friend over at the depot, which is another restaurant, and uh, we're going to go over there. I don't know if they have spinach orange coat dip. And the manager says, well, you know what? I get that. If they don't, we'll make one up, and you, I will send it with you. Just which I thought was being nice, but then I also thought it was, how can I get rid of you? was kind of a thing. So Hope then decides, I'm going to go back to the house and get the idea. I couldn't have been, I've already could have been back by now. And Papa says, oh, we ain't even going to talk about that because that's, that's gone, that's past. So there's, there was also a tension, underlying tension between Hope and Papa the whole time this was going on too. So she goes back, we order our drinks, we get the we get the artichoke dip, and she comes back. And let me just tell you that uh, it ended up being a good night. But I want to add this little thing in there. After all of this, our food took forty minutes to come to the table. So never going back there again. That's just like on top of on top of. Like when you don't get a clue that this table might need some good service at this point. Or at least you want them out of there. One yeah. of the two. Yeah. So I'm so- sorry that I've taken that long of everybody's time. I hope it was entertaining to some degree. But uh, you said you wanted the story, and I might have given you the actual time of the story by telling it. <laughs> well, Tim, Tim really in- enjoyed telling us, and he said that y'all had the idea that if you had one of your friends there that could just walk in and start asking people to see their ID who was drinking, that would have been entertaining too. Oh yeah. Well, have somebody come in undercover. Well, I come with the alcohol license board. I'm here to check people's IDs. I need to see that lady right there. I have talked to a couple people since then who said that they like had worked places and said like that they had to card everybody like under 50 or yeah, you know, well, but I get that, but that must be a, a restaurant policy because it's yeah. not a state law. So for them to be telling customers this is a state law, I'm sorry. No, it's not. And you're the manager of a restaurant, and if you want your customer to have a good service, anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get you worked up. Well, it did. It got me worked up. I was not thinking about not even telling it, but now I'm angry about it. He he's ready to take on a conquest now. There you go. It was just the most ridiculous thing. I mean, I, I couldn't even believe how many things in a row were continuing to be. But, like and I violent. think that it is, it does, you know, it does kind of stand. If, if some things are off, a lot of times, most of the time, that means most things are going to be off. <laughs> oh. Well, I should have got a clue when the guy cleaning the table was not cleaning the table. There you go. Or the table. I mean, you just make the list, right? Oh, I guess we should look for the stories where something was really bad and then it got really good. Although, 
everybody did have a good time that night by the time it was all over. Yeah. So. Yeah. We had some good and stories good. and, and, um, and I, I, uh, this, this episode, if anybody's dialing in and listening up, listening in, dialing up to history through the eyes of faith, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. This episode. You're getting, you're getting history through the eyes of us. Right. Now. <laughs> right. Right. So we can remember. Okay. So here we go. Back to we we got Sarah back because we're still dealing with William. We're we're in the Middle Ages. We have our color commentator. Can we pause just for a second? Yeah, I'm going to say this. Oh, you just don't say anything, okay? I'm going to say, okay, ready? Oh, you mean the story for our dad's 92nd birthday? Oh my gosh, that was crazy. We had a wild time. So many things went wrong. And you tell you what, at another time, I'll give you all the details, okay? So just if just we can talk about that later. Now, I've said that if we want to edit that into the 17-minute story that I did so <laughs> we can cut all that out, okay? <laughs> so it's out there now. If you want to edit it down, then you can just put that in there. It's okay, I have to think or about you can how edit it out. Now you can edit that out, too. So like when you I think both should notes, stay. The whole thing make it 30 minutes long. Okay, okay, here we go. So, Sarah's here, episode 83. We talked about the Battle of Hastings. We talked about William the Conqueror. We talked about Edward the Confessor. And we talked about Edward the something else that got <laughs> killed. And then we talked about a Yusith Ahar. And we talked <laughs> about... Uh, uh, what, what was her name? Ethel, Ethelred. Ethelred and Emma. Elfigu. 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 Oh my goodness. What name? What name? We're going to be glad that Norman's came. But we're going to be throwing up a, a, a picture of the family tree. We'll have that up on uh, our Kofi site in the gallery and also on Instagram. We'll put that up there. So people go, what are they talking about now? And there it is. Elf-gifu-hoo. Okay. <laughs> Sounds kind of like Cindy Lou Anyway, um, so we got William into England and he won the Battle of Hastings. And Harold Godwinson, the king, has been defeated and dead. But the conquest did not end in 1066. It took William several years to consolidate the gains that were made at Hastings. He first had to get himself crowned, which was a tense occasion at which linguistic confusion led to a riot. Sidebar. He then faced serious uprisings, especially in the north, where his infamous harrying made a last, lasting mark on the landscape. Sarah, tell us what harrying is. I don't remember. I think, let me, basically burning stuff. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's essentially... Um, just consistently attacking. So, like coming into a village, attacking everything, probably burning some stuff. Not leaving so that's, much. That's the way left. he was dealing with the uprisings in the north. So it yeah. did ravage the land where it took a long time for it to come back, which is why they said it made a lasting mark on the landscape. And then a revolt in the east in 1070, involving a shadowy figure called. Harroward the Wake quickly became the stuff of legend, 
but marked the effective end of Anglo-Saxon resistance to normal Norman rule. So that period, so that was 1066 until 1070. So a good four to five years to to really be seen as the ruler of England by all parties. And so you can do research into the he he had a he was very politically astute in the way he went about doing things and managed to get crowned and who he got to do it and all that kind of stuff. But we want to talk a little bit more about what then England was like after this conquest. Both the English and the Normans were proud peoples with a long history behind them by 1066. So some tension was inevitable. Many many English monasteries had Norman abbots imposed on them, often against the will of the monks. So it seems to be a big, William goes in and changes leadership positions, okay? Some Norman men who adopted the English fashion of wearing beards and long hair were mocked for being too English, so the sentiment went both ways. So there was mocking by the Normans for being too English and mocking by the English for being too Norman. The remarkable thing about this ethnic tension is how short a time it lasted perhaps in part because the Normans were more, far more interested in continuity than they were in invasion. And I think that's an interesting sentence, that the Normans were far more interested in continuity than they were um, in, in invasions or in innovating. Uh, they didn't want to change up everything. They wanted continuity. The Normans did not value concepts of ethnicity. They intermarried with the English quite readily. Most often, Norman nobles married the daughters of Englishmen to inherit their lands. There's a lot of intermarrying going on. Many English lords who fought on Harold's side at Hastings had their lands confiscated as punishment for treason, but others became loyal servants of the new regime. William wanted to stress his identity as king of the English, and he um, an heir to Edward the Confessor. He confirmed Edward's grants to churches and individuals, so he didn't have to do that. He continued the grants that Edward had made. If people complained that his followers had seized um, land unlawfully, he investigated. William was not equally fair to the Normans and the English. He had to reward his Norman followers, but he was not invariably unfair to the English. When English landholders and monasteries accused Normans of seizing their lands illegally, William allowed the accusers to sue, and a lot of property was ultimately returned. Even land disputes between Normans were settled according to English law. So that's pretty cool and in a lot of ways different than a lot of invasions would be, right? Just trying to, well, I don't know. Trying to make it as smooth as possible, seems like. Yeah, and and... To some degree, be fair or rule by law would rather than just saying, hey, I'm the king. This is the way it's going to go. One of the few changes the Normans brought to English administration was in language. Oh, really? Legal How was that? Legal documents that were previously written in English were now produced in Latin. And if we remember, Latin was the language of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh-huh. So that's kind of interesting because the Normans were French speakers. The English were English speakers, and yet the legal documents were now being written in Latin. Now, um, was it the same I, English we're speaking now? Well, no, because it was affected by the conquest. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Um, 
Within a couple of generations of the conquest, the Normans started to feel more at home in England. Distinctive clothing and hairstyles for English and Normans gradually disappeared by the 1090s, even at court. So that's literally just within 20 years. So that's kind of interesting because you think you could keep your distinctive clothing or things that make you look distinctly Norman or English, but instead they're much more interested in just melding it all together. Normans and people of mixed heritage showed increasing interest in the history of England. The first few decades of the 12th century were a golden age for English history writing. The history writers were all clerics. Many of them were of mixed English and Norman heritage. They had patronage thanks to their Norman heritage, usually their father's side, and an interest in and a familiarity with English customs and traditions. What does that mean? They were clerics. Clerical. Worked for the church. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was that phrase? They said they had patronage. That meant, you know, financial support because of their Norman heritage, which usually meant that they were landholders on their father's side. Clerical historians wrote in Latin or Norman French. The patrons for these were often French noble women who wanted to learn as much as possible about their new homeland. So people are wanting to learn about their new homeland. I think that's I think that's kind of cool. Um, Norman churchmen who came to England adopted English saints as their saints, respected English religious traditions, and capitalized on them to create more publicity and patronage. So y'all are looking so interested. Well, they're just they're just becoming a a a new culture, a blended yeah. new culture. Yep, pretty neat. Around the year, because like it's not like they were all that different from each other. Because you have the Anglo-Saxons, but the Vikings were coming in too, and the Normans had Viking roots, and like they were already intermarrying before. They conquered. Yes, to some degree. Um, yeah. But the, I think that in looking at the history, the island had been an island. You know what I mean? Like it was, there was stuff going back and forth, but England had, and this is the one of the things that we're going to go to. England's focus had been more to the north than to the mm. south toward France. So the, so the French influence was different to the yeah. degree that it was Norman influence. Or Viking influence, it was familiar, but the French influence was different. Um, the church wasn't unaffected by the conquest. William replaced most of the Anglo-Saxon bishops with Normans by attrition, meaning as the Anglo-Saxons died off or moved away, then he replaced them with the Norman. The new bishops represented the reforming spirit of Normandy. Many English monks welcomed these changes, so there was reform going on in the church. English church architecture changed dramatically. Norman churches were much larger and grander than their predecessors, the English version of Romanesque. The cathedral at Durham is the best surviving example of a Norman cathedral. And then castle building was its destructive and controversial process. And we're going to come back and talk about castle building a little bit um, and how that was used in the process. But what was the, the cathedral that you just mentioned? I said I think it said Durham. Yeah, that's what it said. It just I just left it left my screen, but um Durham Cathedral. And if I can, I'm gonna try to find a picture of that. Um the Normans did not make the English abandon their own language in favor of French. It would have been difficult 
and it was not really necessary because Latin, the language of the church, could act as a common language. Fairly quickly after the conquest, we see many scattered references to people who have the word interpreter added to their names as an occupational designation. That's kind of interesting. The Normans, having once spoken Norse, quickly learned French when they settled in Normandy. They quickly learned English when the need arose. All those mixed marriages produced a lot of bilingual children. French was the prestige language because it marked you as a member of the elite. This remained true in England down to the 15th century, if not beyond. Well, Have you ever got that feeling that French speaking is kind of like yeah. being part of the elite? Yeah. So dates all the way back, you know, over a thousand years. No, um, but 1066 and all that book mentioned that the, even if you just look at the wealthiest people in England now, a good percentage of them have Norman names. Like it's still, the wealth is still carried through. Yeah. And, and there's a little bit more in here too that talks about kind of how that happened, which I thought was pretty interesting. It was not uncommon for the elite to speak both languages on a daily basis, French to a spouse or guests and English to the servants. Many words from French got adopted into English, often with a high class association. For example, to dine French versus to eat English. French speakers began adopting English words too, although this was not well as well received on the continent for French speakers to use English words when they were back on the continent. Yeah, the result of this class. Yes. The result of this linguistic mixing was the remarkable English language we know today, with its very subtle subtle vocabulary that can express all different shades of meaning. And one of the things she she mentions, Dr. Paxton mentions, is that English has like half again as many words as most languages have. So you can express a lot more levels, uh, how do you say that, Dis um, color uh, variations in a situation using English than you might be able to in another language. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Uh -huh. Particularly like the Romantic languages and the and those most of the, the Germ Germanic languages. Yeah. So Different. I just looked, I looked up the Durham, uh, Durham Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And it would, you said it was a good example of the change in the style of the church, of the cathedrals, right? Yeah, no, Norman architecture, yeah. Uh, it, and you said it was a good example of Norman architecture. It's in England, uh, the Durham, Durham Cathedral. Would be, and, yeah. And it's, uh, it was built between 1093 and 1133. Yeah. With additions until 1490. So it's interesting because you look at it in the picture and we can put it up on something at some point. And it, you know, I would not look at that and go, oh, that's 1200 years old. You know, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. Cool. Yeah. Anyway. England was now tied to Europe in a way that it had not been before. It would be closely involved in French affairs for the next several centuries because the English kings still own land in France. So these people that came with William to fight this battle were landowners in France. So there were a lot of people who had land in both places, but particularly the kings 
because there's times even when the kings go back to France, which I've read different stories from a few hundred years after this and didn't understand why people were all always running back over to France and all intertwined with France. This helps make a lot of sense of that. So that's kind of interesting. The amount of land England controlled in France fluctuated over time. Much was lost in the early 13th century. The last holding, the port city of Calais, was not surrendered to the French until 1558. The need to take care of the French lands meant that the kings were frequently absent from England, and this may have given a boost to the development of English bureaucracy. Now think about that for a minute. Because the kings were absent, they had to have a system in place for things to continue when they were gone. <laughs> so in a place where the king would never leave, you're not going to delegate as much. But in a place that's set up where the king's going to have to be gone sometimes, there's more delegation going on. And this author believes gave a boost to English bureaucracy. The traffic in ideas between churchmen in England and Normandy linked England with the most important new work being done in canon law and theology. So whereas being across the island, a lot of times they were kind of on their own in church things. And if we go back and look about like to the time of Patrick and going back and forth, England was in a way out of the loop because it wasn't on the continent. But now, um, because of the traffic and ideas that was constantly going back and forth, England was being exposed to the most the new work being done in canon law and theology. English students went to the study, went to study at the new university in Paris in the 12th century, and their experience in Paris created such a demand for higher education at home that England produced its own university at Oxford in the 1160s. So there's another contemporary thing. Wow. Oxford University was founded in the 1160s. But based on education and universities in Paris. Yeah, the first university was in Paris, and we'll come to that because it says uh, in the 12th century. So we'll come to the talking about the establishment of universities will be something we talk about on this podcast sometime in the next few episodes. Um, and so then the English copied that and established Oxford in 1160. English literature was strongly influenced by contacts with the continent and vice versa. Stories about King Arthur, derived from Celtic-speaking areas of Britain, crossed the English Channel and became tales of chivalric romance at the courts of the great nobles of France. And we've already spent a couple episodes talking about that. Yep, 75, mm -hmm. 76. That's right. By the end of the 12th century, the Normans had fully embraced their new home, which made them seem less foreign to the English. In a text written in the 1180s, the English treasurer said it was no longer possible to tell English from Norman. So that was just 100 years after the conquest. England became, in many ways, the best of both worlds. So, so this author would say that the um, two main things to take away from the conquest in her eyes were the language, the change in the English language and how that's carried out to this day. And then the fact that England was now focused more on Europe, on Germany, on, on France, on Germany, on Spain, than they were on Scandinavia, back up toward Sweden, Norway, and the Norse as it was before. And that, that proved 
to be a big thing as time went on. So, any thoughts? Well, I've not no thoughts other than just kind of a, of a recap or an overview or a high level summary of we're seeing Normandy, the Normans. Is that right to say it that way? Yeah. The Normans, yeah. The north of France and then England kind of creating, kind of melding, creating a new culture that's what you said just a few minutes ago was kind of indistinguishable. You couldn't tell any longer the English from the, the Normans, right? No? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I am. So the Battle of Hastings that we were talking about in the previous episode was kind of the segue into kind of a new culture and development. And it yeah. even dovetails into the the lore of King Arthur that we talked about already in 75 and 76. So it's kind of like, in my mind, we're kind of creating a passage of time and what the culture looked like. It's creating the English culture we're familiar with. Yeah. And the language. Yeah, and, and very much, I don't think it's even like a segue. It's a real, it's, it is the real connecting part. I mean, that's why it's important to study the battle of, not so much the battle of Hastings, but the Norman conquest which occurred at the Battle of Hastings, but that whole thing. So I found, um, I did a little looking around then on like, okay, so what would other people say or what's been written about what is the impact of the Norman Conquest? And I found some really interesting things. And this comes from an article that was on worldhistory.org, I think it is. I'll put the link in the show notes. But um, Donuts. Yeah. Donuts. This is an interesting statement. The Norman conquest of England was not a case of one population invading the lands of another, but rather the wresting of power from one ruling ruling elite by another. You know, when we were talking about like in the Old Testament way back when the Babylonians invaded or the Assyrians invaded, they like removed populations. Or like when Alexander the Great invaded, he would go and establish leaders of the government in that area. But what these what what happened here is that there wasn't a significant population movement of Norman peasants crossing the channel to resettle in England. And at that time, England had a population of 1.5 to 2 million people. Although the other direction, many Anglo-Saxon warriors fled to Scandinavia after the battle, and some of them even ended up in the uh, elite guard of the Byzantine emperors, which is kind of interesting. So there were Anglo-Saxon warriors who were defecting after they lost the battle, but the lack of an influx of tens of thousands of Normans was no consolation for the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy, of course, because this is interesting. As 20 years after Hastings, there were only two powerful Anglo-Saxon landowners in England. That's kind of crazy. Rest, all the rest have been replaced by Norman. So that's what 
he's meaning by this exchange of one of one elite to another elite, right? Some 200 Norman nobles and 100 bishops and monasteries were given estates, which had been distributed among 4,000 Anglo-Saxon landowners prior to 1066. So where there was 4,000 landowners, there now was 200 nobles and 100 bishops that owned the same thing, that were Norman. Awesome. To, ensure, to ensure the Norman nobles did not abuse their power and so threaten William himself, many of the old Anglo-Saxon tools of governance were kept in place, notably the sheriffs who governed in the king's name, the districts or shires into which England had traditionally been divided. So those were kept in place. The sheriffs were also replaced with Normans, but they did provide a balance to Norman landowners in their jurisdiction. So I just thought that was kind of, was very interesting. This church was also similarly restructured with the appointment of Norman bishops, including in 1070, the key archbishops of Canterbury and York, so that by 1087, there were only two Anglo-Saxon bishops left. Another significant change was the move of many diocese headquarters moved into urban locations, which gave William much greater administrative and military control of the church across England, but also benefited the church itself by bringing bishops closer to the relatively new urban populations. So the, the court and the government became more centralized. And it wasn't centralized in the sense of location, because at this point, this is interesting too, the king didn't have a permanent residence, but moved around from his kingdom, throughout his kingdom, and regularly visited Normandy. Isn't that interesting? Because we think about, I, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, the court would just move around. Now, there's several different kings, though, right? No, this at this point we're down to one, right? Yeah, William for England. Yeah. Okay, the one. Okay. Yeah, and but he's moving around. He doesn't have like it wasn't. Was it, uh, go ahead. Wasn't this too? Didn't the Normans set aside all the like all this like royal forest land? I think they. I think that was them. Have I got that right? Maybe I think I might yeah. have read that. Now we're going to come to the castle part, which I thought was fascinating. I, I've talked about castled in the past, Frank, and you know it was all about like, well, it's obviously a fortress. It's all obviously a defense to keep invaders out and stuff. Well, oh. the Normans put a little different twist on it. So they were hugely successful warriors, and the importance they gave to cavalry and archers would affect English armies thereafter. So introducing the horses and the archers. Perhaps even more significant was the construction of garrisoned forts and castles across England. Castles were not entirely unknown in England prior to the conquest, but they were then used only as defensive redoubts rather than a tool to control a geographical area. So castles became a tool to control a geographical area, which also helps understand why you see so many of them in Europe. Okay, and, and a lot of my research into castles was like, when did they appear? And a lot of times they would say around the 11th century. Well, that makes sense now with William doing all this. Um, How do they control an area? So William embarked on a castle building spree immediately after Hastings, as he well knew that a protected garrison of cavalry could be the most 
effective method of military and administrative control over his new kingdom. From Cornwall to Northumbria, the Normans would build over 65 major castles and another 500 lesser ones in the decades after Hastings. A lot of castles. Yeah, so the it's Normans basically a place to keep, lack of a better word, soldiers and horses. Yeah, it's like a military just, garrison. Yeah, yeah, but they, it, yeah, okay. So they're going to describe how they go about it. Um, they used military architecture, which was called the Mott and Bailey Castle. The Mott was a raised mound upon which a fortified tower was built, and the Bailey was a courtyard surrounded by a wooden palisade, which occupied an area around part of the base of the mound. So it's like they build a mound, and they put a tower on it, and they build a fence around it, and the whole structure was further protected by an encircling ditch or a moat around that. These castles were built in both rural and urban settings, and in many cases would be converted into stone versions in the early 12th century. A good surviving example is the castle rising in Norfolk, but other more famous castles still standing today, which were originally Norman constructions, include the Tower of London, Dover Castle in Kent, and Clifford's Tower in York. Norman Romanesque cathedrals were also built, and then that's where it goes back to the example of the Durham, Canterbury, Winchester, and Lincoln, with the white stone being a particular, especially popular choice of material. Well, I had heard one time that the white stone was to be able to, from a distance, you could see if anything was attacking your castle in the, in the nighttime because it would be against the white. Well, that's interesting. Have you really heard that, or did you just come up with that? I did hear, hear that. Oh, that's pretty good. That would make sense. So, so they would move in and quickly put up this garrison, the beginnings of a castle, and they would be destroying a lot of houses to do it too, which was interesting, which was sad. So they, they didn't care if something was already there. They didn't look for an open space. They just come and put in the castle and maintain authority. That is so many in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. The other thing is we, when you think about a conquest, you think that the people would be outraged that you're attacking our country. But this author says there was no particular feeling of outrage nationalism following the conquest. The concept is a much more, that concept is a much more modern construct. And so peasants would not have felt their country had somehow been lost. Neither was there any specific hatred of the Normans. And this, as the English grouped all William's allies together as a single group, Britons and Angevins were simply French speakers. But here's the interesting, interesting thing. In the Middle Ages, visitors to an area that came from a distant town were regarded just as foreign as someone from another country. So your life was so local that someone coming from a distant town would be just as foreign to you as someone coming from a distant country. Peasants really only felt loyalty to their own local communities and lords, although this may well have resulted in some ill feeling when a lord was replaced by a Norman noble. The Normans would certainly have seemed like outsiders, a feeling only strengthened by language barriers. And the king, at least, initially did ensure loyalty by imposing harsh penalties on on any dissent. For example, if a Norman were found murdered, then the nearest village was burned. 
hmm. a policy hardly likely to win over any affection. No, it's not going to win me over. It does there were also new law. Go ahead. Like the most lingering thing. Like it's just, they were just grumpy about it. Like they're still grumpy about it. <laughs> so they brought in, um, they, they enforced the English laws and kind of helped codify them. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, another important change to the new laws. Yes, there's the there's the thing about the new forest, Sarah. That's what I thought that was a pretty big deal. Yes, as such, Williams' withdrawal of hunting rights in certain areas, notably the new forest, poachers were severely dealt with and could expect to be blinded or mutilated if caught. That's how we get to the Robin Hood legends. Yes. Another important change due to new laws regarded slavery, which was essentially eliminated from England by 1130, just as it had been in Normandy. So huh. that really plays into history going forward mm -hmm. to see that slavery was eliminated in England that early on. So there was this thing called the Domesday Book, and it was compiled by William in uh, he ordered it compiled from 1086 to 87. Probably he ordered it to find out for tax purposes exactly who owned what in England following the deaths of many of the Anglo-Saxon nobles over the course of the conquest and the giving out of new estates and titles by the king. Indeed, Domesday Book reveals William's total reshaping of land ownership and power in England. It was the most comprehensive survey ever undertaken in any medieval kingdom and is full of juicy statistics for modern historians to study, such as the revelation that 90% of the population lived in the countryside and 75% of the people were serfs. And so not he, smurfs. Not smurfs, but serfs. Not smurfs. Uh -oh. And then it goes on to talk about how uh, the development of feudalism was strengthened um, during him, which we mentioned before, that he made it more like a system. So uh, what you had shared with me earlier was that because knights were part of the Norman culture, they were introduced in England. So I thought that was interesting. Um, My little story about them being white as a defense and protection may be true. I did hear that, and I thought it was pretty cool. So I want to stay with it and keep that like a real thing. But in a trying to Google it and find it, I'm not finding it. So it might also have to do something with protecting the stone is why they were white, but I'm going with both of them. Okay, sounds good. I think it'd be harder to shoot at a white castle. Like, things would stand out on it, but, like, the sun would clap glare off of it more. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I would set the record straight on that. Apologies, my headphones died when I was trying to talk about nights, so I had to switch mics and stuff. Okay. Well, we're glad you're back with us. I was reading about trade. I'm sitting here reading about trade and how uh, places like London, Southampton, and Nottingham attracted many French merchant settlers. And this movement included other groups such as Jewish merchants from uh, Rouen, goods that thus came and went across the English Channel. For example, huge quantities of English wool were exported to Flanders and wine was imported from France 
although there is evidence it was not the best one that the country had to offer. So this conquest affected trade and once again goes back to the other author's point that it turned England more toward Europe and away from Scandinavia as trade died away in Scandinavia. So the Norman conquest of England then resulted in long-lasting and significant changes for both the conquered and the conquerors. The fate of the two countries of England and France would become inexorably linked over the following centuries as England became a much stronger and united kingdom within the British Isles and an influential participant in European politics and warfare thereafter. Even today, names of people and places throughout England remind of the lasting influence the Normans brought with them from 1066 onward. I think when we think about England, we think about it as a part of Europe, which was not the case before the conquest. Hmm. I mean, it was technically part of the European continent, and it would be, yeah. but it was not connected in that way. It was like the they were dealing land. with like Iceland and the north northern people versus the rest of the and, continent. Yeah, and mainly just because those people had been invading them. Right. Okay. So that's William in 1066. That's what I have to bring today. Well, I think it's a good. So where do we go from here? Like when we, when the, the history, we've got these timelines or put it, piecing it together. We're now in the 11th century and we're creating this English Norman culture, feudalism, so castles, What's next? So what I'm doing is looking at the actual timeline and looking at the events and where they happen and trying to cover the major changes that are and transitions that are taking place like in the 11th century. So we've got some stories to go to now, which I think it's where we'll go next. I've got a little bit more research to do that have to talk about there's major movement in the church, in particularly the Roman Catholic Church, as far as the way it views itself and is interacting politically with these nations, not really called nations, states that are arising. Things have, the invasions have settled down to a large part, at least in the western part of Europe right now. Um, and then, so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to jump over there. It's not very many years down the road till the West and the East begin intersecting again. And so we have to set up the scene for what's been happening in the East and talk about how that interaction begins. So that's where we're going next. And then okay. that will take us into the high Middle Ages and then we're off. We're just very close. I was telling somebody the other day that there's things that I'm looking at that are happening in our world right now that were greatly affected and created, inspired, the result of things that were happening 150 to 200 years ago, which those things were happening in response to things that happened 200 years before that, which happened in response to the period that we're talking about right now. Okay. So, so it's like, it's getting close enough now that it's easier to draw the lines. So I'm yeah. excited. Yeah, me too. I think it's interesting. And I'm I'm doing some 
background work on previous episodes and stuff, and I'll have more to bring to us on that um, in upcoming episodes. Because when I get it ready, I'll announce it, but it's not ready yet. So, okay, working on that. Well, Exciting. here we are. Thank you, so, Sarah, for being with us. Yeah, before we uh, before we sign off, I think Sarah should tell you where we went Saturday night. Um, we met some of my friends, uh, in downtown Melbourne, uh, over in Australia. We took a short jaunt across the country or a continent. No, ocean. That's what you cross to get to Australia. Uh, no, Melbourne, Florida. And we, it was a, a rooftop restaurant. It was a lot of fun, a little chilly. And then when we got done there, there is a, um, saloon bar called the county line just next door and my friend was like we gotta go see if there's line dancing so we went to the bar and um i'm just glad they didn't have a mechanical bull because she was going to get me on it and i was not down for that that night and you were gonna get a picture (laughs) yeah so we are not bringing that content (laughs) there was line dancing it was quite entertaining it was fun it was it was very entertaining I don't think I told you. I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. Friday was Wes's birthday. Producer Wes's birthday was Friday. Right. Happy birthday, yeah. Producer Wes. And he and I took him and two of his brothers, and we went down to the Symphony Center, and we watched Pirates of the Caribbean while the symphony played the music. I'm so jealous. And I know that fantastic. Sitting, sitting home for Sarah right there. It was really good. I bet that was awesome. I've seen that they do that. Like the National Symphony does that for some of the different mm-hmm. and that just sounds really cool. A couple weeks ago it was Star Wars and that was too expensive. But <laughs> the Pirates was it was good. We had a really, really good time. Cool. Well, well thank you. Here we are. And um, thanks for listening. Episode 84. And we will see you next time. Good night, goodbye, good day, good workout. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe or follow wherever you stream your podcasts. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link to our Ko-fi site in our bio. Thanks for listening.